0: Oh man, Alan. Season three, Alan. Season three. Can you believe we survived this long?
1: I cannot believe it, Alan. But I have to tell you, I miss you. I miss you. I thought we'd be back together by now.
0: So let me do my introduction and do we'll it, get to do that. it. Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to season three of Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, here with my amazing co-host, Ellen McGirt, more amazing <laughs> this year than ever. That's
1: right. More amazing all the time, 24-7. <laughs> Hello, everyone. I'm so happy to be back with everybody in front of our mics, um, but I do have to say, Alan, I'm a little disappointed. I was might not have predicted that COVID would have upended things to the slow and steady degree, which they did. How have you fared? How are you doing?
0: I've done okay. One of my daughters uh, ended up with the Omicron virus, but I think we have to admit that this is, particularly if you've been vaccinated, not as serious or dangerous an illness as it was six months or so ago. So. You know, wasn't fun, but it. She got through it, and I know you've had some COVID experiences over the holiday as well.
1: Yep, both kids, and it meant for a distributed holiday. I'm quarantining alone with my mom down here in Florida in my makeshift uh, podcasting studio. So I do miss. When I say I miss everybody, I literally miss everybody.
0: (laughs) Yeah, me too. So people who listen to this podcast regularly know that Ellen does the clouds, and I do the silver lining, and (laughs) and and and. and, (laughs) There have been a lot of silver linings to uh, to the experience of the last couple of years. It's really accelerated some important trends in our society, most notably technology, but uh, also, as we talk about a lot, the commitment mm-hmm. that companies are making to improving their social footprint Correct. Uh, as well as their financial returns. And, and today we're going to talk about one of the positive effects that we haven't really talked about that much yet, which is how COVID has changed the geography of technology and the lock that Silicon Valley and a few other places had on technology spending. And our guest today is somebody who has been devoted to this for some time, well before the pandemic. He's Steve Case, CEO of Revolution a DC-based investment firm that's focused on building companies across the country. His Rise of the Rest Seed Fund, in particular, has backed nearly 180 startups in over 80 cities. Pretty impressive. He, of course, was also the uh, founder of AOL, which Ellen Oldsters like you and me, remember. And (laughs) (laughs) and Fortune uh, plays a role in the history of AOL that we will get to in a minute. But let's start with the big news.
1: Steve, welcome to Leadership Next. Great to be with both of you. Uh, So, Steve, tell us how
0: the pandemic has affected your effort to spread technology from the Silicon Valleys into the rest of the country. Well,
2: it's really been an accelerant, sort of a tipping point. We've been working on this now for over a decade. I was asked about 10 years ago to chair a White House initiative called uh, Startup America. And then we started launching our Rise the Rest bus tours, traveling around the country. We started those about seven years ago. So far, I've visited over 40 cities by bus and just tried to better understand what's happening in those cities and shine a spotlight on entrepreneurs in those cities and tell the stories what's happening uh, in, in places outside of the you know, Silicon Valley, New York City, Boston, which have dominated the innovation economy for the past couple of decades. The data is pretty uh, sobering that for the, most of the decades, 75% of venture capital has gone to just three states, mm-hmm. California, New York, and Massachusetts, wow. which means the other 47 states are fighting over the remaining 25%. So we've long said, That we want to level the playing field and make it possible for anybody anywhere to start and scale a company and create jobs everywhere and and hope and opportunity everywhere and for most of the decade you know it was a slog we started making a little bit of progress in the last few years Uh, But the pandemic definitely was a a tipping point and more people now are moving to other places or or moving back to places they had left. And uh, even some of the venture capitalists that have historically just focused on backing companies on the coast are starting to look inward and back companies all across the country. So I do believe one of the silver linings of a terrible, tragic pandemic may be. This accelerant uh, in terms of the, what's happening with these rising cities and, and more companies starting and scaling in cities, uh, dozens and dozens of cities, not just a few, which is, I think, going to be great for our country, maybe even in, in a way, help unify a divided country, because there will be more opportunity for more people in more places. It won't just be a few people on the coast, places like Silicon Valley doing really well, a lot of people in other parts of the country feeling kind of left out, left behind.
1: I love the sound of that. See, I like the silver linings, too. Um, <laughs> but before we get into what you're learning in these cities, because I think this is a really important story, and, and how you've learned to get better at identifying promising stories and talent, could you just tell us how revolution is structured? Because you've been doing this for a while, and Rise of the Rest, I think, is the best known of your efforts, certainly the most optimistic um, story of your efforts, but that's not the only thing that you've been doing.
2: We launched Revolution uh, about fifteen years ago. So after I stepped down as CEO of AOL, started making some investments, formalized it as a family office, and for the first few years I was the uh, investing my own capital. Uh, but about ten years ago, really decided there was an opportunity to build Revolution much more of an institutional platform, uh, have outside capital as well, and really try to scale it to be one of the best investment firms backing entrepreneurs in the country, but with a bias towards investing in entrepreneurs outside of Silicon Valley. So now we have, you know, three uh, strategies, three uh, groups, revolution growth, the later stage investments. Uh, companies like uh, Sweet Green and Tempest and Big Commerce and DraftKings are, are a part of that. We have uh, Revolution Ventures, which is more of a classic uh, Series A uh, investor. They've invested in a couple of dozen you know, companies that have been scaling nicely. And the more recent uh, one, which you mentioned, we started about four years ago, was the Rise of the Rest Seed Fund, uh, which is the early stage kind of uh, investment where we're partnering with regional venture firms. So far, we've co invested with over 300 regional venture capitalists to back. 180 companies in over 80 cities. So the now Revolution is really able to back entrepreneurs at every stage of the journey, whether that be that very early seed stage when it's just getting off the ground or when they have product market fit and are starting to scale, or later stage when they really are, are accelerating and, and need capital, but also need help with partnerships, help with positioning, help with uh, you know, policy, some of the things that we think Revolution can can bring to the party as well as, uh, as writing checks.
1: Wow. So you're rolling so you're on this bus and you've got this talent and this this wellspring of experience and a killer Rolodex and you roll into Atlanta or Philadelphia or Columbus Ohio what what happens next
2: As you might imagine, there's a lot of planning that goes into this. So six months before we are in the city, where our team starts working, kind of an advanced team thing, a lot of time in the city, talking to venture capitalists, talking to the mayor, talking to the the CEOs of large companies, talking to the university presidents, really try to understand in each city what's happening, what's unique about that city, what's unique about their past, what can be kind of unique about their future. Uh, So they do a lot of planning before we're there. Then when we're actually there, we use the bus, our Rise the Rest bus, is, is not just a way to get from meeting to meeting or from company to company, but really as a convening platform. We invite people onto the bus, uh, some from that region, but also others from other places, including coastal venture capitalists. But it ends up being a you know, day-long uh, kind of a brainstorming session while we're going between stops. And that actually has proven to be the most important part of it, wow. because in these cities we often find that we're connectors, even to people that are in the same city who didn't really know what each other were doing. And we uh, use that as a way to also educate people, usually from the coast about what's happening in, in these different yeah. cities. And every city's a little different. It's one of the great things about this country. and we, so we really spent a lot of time trying to understand what is you know particularly unique about a particular city. I remember, for example, when we were in Chattanooga, Tennessee, Hey, uh, Steve. We saw a lot of.
0: I, I just got to stop. My yeah. hometown. My
2: hometown. Mm-hmm. So keep going. Yeah, all, there you uh, go. Promote Chattanooga well, 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 all I'm you a, can. I'm gonna give the pitch. Maybe you should move back to Chattanooga. <laughs> this is this is your moment, Alan. <laughs> so Chattanooga is actually proving to be a, an interesting uh, startup city. That was not true 10 years ago. A number of things happened, including the mayor investing in fastest broadband in the country. Uh, but also, it, it was interesting about Chattanooga. You would have known this. I didn't until we visited. That Chattanooga is really a trucking uh, capital a logistics capital, almost the Silicon Valley of trucking. Some of the largest trucking companies are headquartered there. And just given the the interstate highway system, that's a central location for uh, for trucking. So, the company, one of the companies we met when we were in Chattanooga, is a company called Freightways that basically is like a Bloomberg data platform for the trucking and logistics industry. Wow. And that's an example of something that you, you, I guess you could have started that in New York or you could have started that in San Francisco, but it's actually better to start that in Chattanooga because you can hire a team that understands the, the business of trucking, even the culture of, of trucking and logistics, and you can quickly establish partnerships with the major you know, trucking companies. So, that is actually actually the best place to launch a startup focused on trucking. And, and yeah. so we've seen that all over the country where people just presume that Silicon Valley is where all the great innovation uh, you know, comes from. Obviously, there are a lot of great things about Silicon Valley, but we've traveled around the country. Every city has their own story yeah. and every city has some startups that are really starting to scale. I think we'll surprise people over the next decade.
0: And your thesis, if I understand it correctly, is not that talent is going to become distributed and you can live anywhere you want to and work any place else you want to. Place is important, uh, but you think that it can be smaller groups of talent as opposed to everybody in Silicon Valley and New York and Northern Virginia.
2: Yeah, no, I think this pandemic has broken the lock, kind of peaked Silicon Valley a couple of years ago, where the sense was everybody had to be clustered together and they really kind of had to be in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think to your question, there's really two parts of it. I think there is an opportunity now, as you well know, to think about work and life in a different way and to choose where you want to live and where, you know, where you want to work and how you want to work is more flexibility clearly than there was just a couple of years ago. And for some that might mean leaving Silicon Valley, still working for a big company, Google or Facebook, or somebody, but doing it from someplace else. Uh, for others, it might be a wake-up call that they want to be doing something different in some other place. And that, I think, will accelerate these rising cities. And we do believe, particularly in the early stage of companies, when it's still just a, an idea, you know, you have a handful of people, maybe a couple of dozen people, that, that being together does have some benefits. There clearly are some successful companies that have started and scaled as remote-only companies. I'm sure we'll see more of those. But most companies in that early stage, when they're figuring it out, there's some value to being together and in these rising cities. We also see some value to being together. We see innovation neighborhoods, innovation districts kind of rising up in most of these cities where, you know, entrepreneurs kind of want to be close to each other and Mm -hmm. bounce ideas off each other. That is, frankly, one of the great things about Silicon Valley, what what they call network density, that, you you know, no matter where you go, uh, you can run into other people that might be able to help you take your idea to the next level. So we think it's a sort of a game changer, almost a shake the snow globe moment, uh, this pandemic and how it's going to impact life and work, but also how it has the potential to impact the startup uh, landscape and and start accelerating this leveling the playing field. So people growing up in these places are going to some of these great universities like uh, Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh or or, or Michigan in Ann Arbor, or there's many others. When they graduate, instead of feeling like they have to go to one of the big tech hubs like uh, San Francisco or New York, having the ability to stay in Pittsburgh if they want to be, or maybe go back home from where they they grew up and start and scale a company or join a company uh, there, I think it's going to really be an important accelerant and so we're excited by some of the early signs that we're seeing.
1: I want to talk a little bit about what a good idea looks like um, in this in this crazy world that we live in, and a little bit about where traditional investment and venture thinking may have missed the mark in the past, particularly when it comes to underrepresented, underestimated company founders, regardless of where they, you might find them. You, your face literally lit up when you started talking about trucking in Chattanooga. So clearly, you are personally <laughs> jazzed by discovering the insight that's, that's hiding in plain sight there. But one of the em- emblematic um, examples of someone who really struggled to get the funding they deserved is well known to leadership next listeners It's Tristan Walker, you know, CEO of Walker Brands. And he's famously told the story, you know, walking up the mean streets of Sand Hill Road and no one understands, you know, the 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 market opportunity of millions of people with with skin and hair like he is. So how do you think about um Coaching your colleagues through the 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 trap of pattern matching as they start thinking about new investments out there, because i I do think that um, there's a lot of money in traditional traditionally organized uh, venture capitalist sh- venture capital shops. but I'm not sure that the industry as a whole is is leading in the new thinking the way that you are.
2: No, I think that's right. First of all, I should say Tristan Walker did decide to leave Silicon Valley and move to Atlanta. It's so a great example what's happening in these rise of the rest cities. There are people who felt they had to be in Silicon Valley now rethinking that. And that was pre-pandemic. I think you've seen a lot more people doing the pandemic make that decision. Uh, you bring up an important point. I mentioned the data around venture capital in terms of place, 75% of the venture capital dollar is going to just three states. If you look at people, it's actually even more sobering and troubling. Black Americans are 13% of our population. Black entrepreneurs, Entrepreneurs get less than 1% of venture capital. Women are 50% of our population. Female founders get less than 10% of venture capital. So it clearly does matter where you live and it does matter what you look like. If you have an idea, whether you really have a shot of building a company, a shot of really the American dream. And so as we've traveled around, we've had a kind of leaned into trying to make sure we're inclusive in terms of pitch competitions and other things we do really work closely to identify some of the local venture firms that are backing more diverse founders. And as a result, about 45% of our rise the rest seed investments are diverse founders, either female founders or people of color, which is still not what it should be, but it's way better than you'll see from venture capital firms in Silicon Valley. Now, some of this is because the cities that we're visiting, these rising cities tend to be more diverse in and of themselves. Uh, Atlanta, New Orleans, Washington, D.C. are more diverse than some of the traditional cities. As you said, not just have it be pattern recognition. A venture capital mindset is the way to make investments is to look what you've invested in the past and make more of those. Uh, So it's kind of rear view mirror investing. Uh, there is something to that, but you're going to miss out on some of the big opportunities of the future if you're just looking in the rearview mirror. And if you're just backing entrepreneurs that happen to be people you went to school with at Stanford or worked with at Google, that's going to limit your aperture, if you will, and and, and limit the number of, of great ideas from great founders that you can back. So hopefully, just as we're seeing uh, this leveling the playing field in terms of, of place, more venture dollars now going to cities all around the country. I think we'll also see an acceleration in terms of that money also going to more. diverse
0: uh, founders. I'm here with Joe Yuccazoglu, who is CEO of Deloitte U.S. and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Joe, thanks for being with us and thanks for your support. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. Joe, recent CEO transitions point to the stark lack of black leadership at Fortune 500 companies and a broader leadership problem at those companies, which affects the pipeline to the top. How are organizations tackling that?
3: Alan, we're seeing an intense focus across our client base, and this has moved well beyond the supportive statements that most companies made. There's a recognition that that was the easy part. The real work is making certain that there's a sustainment of intensity past the headline line to actually address the underlying systemic barriers, to get behind the root causes, to make the changes in core business processes around how we're sourcing talent more inclusively, how we're driving equity into assignments, into promotions, to remove the systemic barriers that have historically existed. And I am seeing real change across corporate America.
0: This is not a new problem, obviously, but you think there is a new seriousness in attacking it?
3: Well, I I think it goes beyond seriousness to alignment of interests and a recognition amongst business leaders that this is core to the strategy, that those companies that do this well will be more successful in their markets and will be a more attractive destination for talent. Thank you, Joe. Alan, pleasure to be here. Steve, we have to spend a little
0: time talking about the Steve Case story because it is such a fascinating story. You built, led AOL, the first big wave of the tech boom. I was in Washington, D.C. in the late 90s when there were literally thousands of AOL millionaires. Talk about creating opportunity, walking around from the success of that company. Then merged it into our former parent, Time Warner, which at the time was the biggest merger in history. In retrospect, is not viewed as a terribly successful merger. And if I remember correctly, Fortune had a role to play in all of that.
2: Yeah, no, it was an interesting journey. We started AOL in Northern Virginia uh, in 1985. Only 3% of people were online. They're online an average of an hour a week. And we had this bold idea. We wanted to get America online and connect the world through the, the Internet. And it was a long you know, slog. It really took us a decade before we finally broke through. I remember we went public in 1992. Uh, We raised $10 million in our IPO and the market value (laughs) that day was $70 million. And nobody really knew or cared what we were doing or frankly was was paying attention to the internet. And then, as you mentioned, the nineties things really took off. We went from that $70 million valuation in, in 92, to I think it was $160 billion valuation, seven, eight years later. And that's when we merged with Time Warner. We really thought bringing together what was then the dominant internet company with the leading media company that also owned uh, cable systems really would create a this, this great company that really could lead the future. and uh, But as you mentioned, it was a disappointment. Uh, the, the vision of how these companies could work together, I think was sound, but the execution uh, was not. And to your point, some of that was formulated when we were both, uh, Jerry Levin, who was the CEO of Time Warner, and I were happened to be at a Fortune Global Forum, I believe it was in Singapore. And then we flew on to Beijing for a bunch of uh, events uh, uh, when China was celebrating its uh, 50th anniversary of being founded. And the Time Warner board happened to be in China that week for a series of meetings. So that's when things did get started. A few months later, we announced the uh merger but as i said the lesson for me is you know and it's it's obviously what this whole podcast is about that the vision is important having a sense of where you want to go is important but execution is more important ultimately that is about setting the right priorities having the right people working together in the right kind of way and the disappointment of the all-time warner merger really was we never got that right that the people really never were unified around the vision and never really focused on execution as a result and by the way that merger was announced Twenty-two years ago. Wow, wow. <laughs> it's been a well, long time. It has that was before. At the time, Apple was a tiny company, and Google was just <laughs> gotten founded. And Netflix was just getting going, and Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg was still in school, and uh-huh. and Spotify wasn't started. A lot of things yeah. that are now, you know, now uh, dominant didn't exist uh, twenty plus years ago. So it was a huge missed opportunity.
0: We're glad to see you're still going strong, and and we at least are still going. Well, i going to be going strong as well, powered by this podcast. Um, Ellen, I I know you had a speed round here that you wanted to do.
1: I did. I did indeed, Ellen. Thank you so very much. We're starting off 2022, adding a new element to Leadership Next, where we're asking all of our distinguished guests three sort of fast pulse questions just to give us a sense of how they see the world. And by the end of the year, I think we're going to have a pretty nice snapshot of, of, of what's happening in real time. So here are very easy easily answerable questions for you, Steve Case. In one or two sentences, tell us your biggest concern regarding COVID right now.
2: I think just the general frustration that, that people have, kind of, you know, hurry up and go, stop, you know, what's the new rules? It, it, it's unsettling to everybody and uh, very hard, obviously, for you know, leaders to lead organizations when the rules keep changing. I happen to be the chair of the Smithsonian mm. Institution right now. It's 21 museums. It's a good example. We, we had to close, then we reopened, then we had to close again. Now we have limited hours. It, it's just an adjustment to it that is still challenging for everybody as an individual, for families, uh, and obviously for organizations as well.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely True. And thank you for your work with the Smithsonian. What a treasure. Your biggest concern about the economy?
2: Well, I think the economy continues to be pretty robust. And I think the innovation that's now the focus of, of a lot of companies that we back are really tackling Big industries like healthcare, uh, big big sectors like food, big challenges and opportunities like climate, there's opportunity to build some of the most valuable companies in, in the world. Uh, at the same time, I think you do need to be careful if, if you're an investor around entry valuations. Things don't always go up, even when they're good ideas. We've seen a lot of uh, uh, cycles, so I think as investors, we really need to look at that. And, and, and more broadly, in terms of the economy, I think there's a concern, we talked about it earlier, around income inequality and opportunity inequality. How do we create a more uh, inclusive uh, economy? that everybody feels part of it, everybody uh, feels in- included, as opposed to a few people doing really well, and a lot of people and a lot of places uh, being left behind.
1: And to hit the human side of leadership, the biggest challenge you feel that you're facing as a leader? A uh,
2: really scaling revolution and while trying to make sure that we have the right culture. We, we, we have grown rapidly. We expect that to continue in the years ahead. Uh, so that's one at Revolution specifically more broadly in terms of the companies we backed. We've now backed over 200 companies and across Revolution Growth, Revolution Ventures and our Rise the Rest Seed Fund, how can we be supporters to those companies? How can we help those companies succeed? How can we help those entrepreneurs have their dreams come true? Uh, and that often is helping them on strategy, sometimes helping them on recruiting people, sometimes helping them on policy issues, sometimes helping them with strategic partnerships or positioning the companies. That's a big focus as well. It's not just about writing the check. It's about how you really then roll up your sleeves and help these companies succeed.
1: The last couple of years, particularly around COVID, are the kinds of companies that you're seeing evolve, changing. What's what's hitting your radar?
2: Yeah, it's what I have called the third wave of the internet companies. The first wave was just getting everybody connected, getting everybody online, building the on-ramps companies like AOL and Yahoo and many others. That was really the first 20 years or so. The last twenty years is sort of the second wave of the internet has built essentially building software and apps on top of the internet, you know Facebook, Google being some of the classic examples. I think the third wave is when the internet meets the real world and really starts impacting the most fundamental aspects of our lives: how we stay healthy, how we learn, how we invest, you know, kind of what we eat, how we deal with climate. So some of the biggest industries in the world, uh, like healthcare, one sixth of our, our economy are kind of up for grabs in the third wave. And that's what we're seeing with revolution as we're backing companies all across the, the country. Companies like uh, Tempest, a healthcare company in Chicago focused on personalized medicine, or App Harvest, a company focused on you know, kind of ag tech in Eastern Kentucky, Appalachia, or Sweetgreen. It started in the Washington, D.C. area. And the climate side, we back companies like Temper Pack focused on sustainable packaging, ridding the world of of styrofoam there in Richmond, uh, Virginia. So these are big opportunities to attack big problems, but also in the process disrupt big industries and I think that's what's going to happen in this third wave. And it's going to be more regionally dispersed because a lot of the know-how you need, the domain expertise, the credibility to establish strategic partnerships are going to benefit the entrepreneurs in these rise of the rest uh, you know, cities. So I think this innovation is changing in a pretty fundamental way. Mm. It's, you know, The, the app economy and, and just having apps for smartphones is not going to be where the, the puck is going. It's going to be some of these big par- parts of our lives, big industries that are up for grabs. Last point I will make is, In some ways, those early days of the internet, the first wave of the internet, it actually was quite regionally dispersed, more than people think. People presume it was Silicon Valley, but as we talked, AOL was in the, the D.C. area. Hayes, the modem company, was in Atlanta. Sprint, the communications company, was in Kansas City. IBM's PC operations were in Boca Raton, Florida. Microsoft actually started in Albuquerque before moving to Seattle. CompuServe was in Columbus, Ohio. I could can, can take wow. off a, another dozen or so companies like that. Yeah, so the first wave was geographically dispersed. It was only the second wave Uh, When it became about Mm -hmm. software and apps and, and coding, the Silicon Valley rose to such prominence, arguably dominance. In the third wave, I think it can disperse again because of the domain expertise in the food sector, in the healthcare sector, and many of these other uh, areas that are up for grabs. So I'm, I'm very excited about this, this third wave. It, it, it's going to really impact our lives in profound ways and disrupt industries in really significant ways and create the great big opportunity for both entrepreneurs and investors to really help build some of the industries of the future, do it in a much more inclusive way, bringing along more people and bringing along more places.
1: What role do voters have to play in all of this? Is there is should we be advocating for something from local and federal government that will make things easier for entrepreneurs in the middle of the country?
2: Uh, some there's good some progress there, but more attention I think would be helpful. Some of the recent. Uh, legislation around infrastructure did include broadband uh, for rural areas, which would really be an important way to level the playing field. There's also legislation now pending, uh, the Endless Frontier Act, that would fund regional hubs, about 10 regional hubs. The government would help stimulate more development, just as they helped stimulate development in Silicon Valley itself. It's worth remembering that 100 years ago, Silicon Valley was just fruit orchards. It wasn't growing startups, it was growing fruit. Uh, but some investments, including in semiconductor research by the, right. you know, the government, really powered that, that innovation. And, and help create yep. uh, Silicon you know, Valley. And there's a role for local government, really, to make sure they're supportive of, of startups. Mayors have to really evangelize on behalf of the, the comp- entrepreneurs in the area, win the battle for talent as people are thinking of new places to live, win the battle for capital as investors are thinking of new places to invest. So there is definitely a role for government, both at the national level and at the local level. And when these third-wave industries, because of healthcare and food are, are regulated, there's also going to be more of a role for government in terms of striking the right balance in terms, terms of unleashing innovation while protecting, you know, kind of people.
0: Uh, An important part of the Chattanooga story, not to dwell on it uh, (laughs) uh, continuously, but an important part of the Chattanooga story was the decision by the government and the electric power board to provide internet access to everyone. That's so, right. Early on. Absolutely.
2: That's right. absolutely. And They actually had litigation with some of the telecom companies to allow it to go forward. And that really helped put them on the map in terms of the startup people said. So people said, wow, Chattanooga has the highest speed internet in the country. Who would have thought? And that opened some people's eyes, both the, the consumers already in Chattanooga and other people thinking about other places to potentially start or scale their company. So it is a great example of what's happening all across the country. Sort of the untold story that you know, there's so much focus on, on Silicon Valley. Not enough focus on these Rise to
0: Rest cities. I think that will change over the next decade. Well, thanks for that. That was awesome. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us about it. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you, Ellen. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media.